All right, hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Let'sRun.com Track Talk podcast. We're slightly late this week uh, because we wanted to wait until after Thursday's Stockholm Diamond League took place. Very interesting meet. Some, well, one very fast time in the 10,000 with Ronex Cabrudo running 26.50, but overall pretty chilly and cold, windy conditions, not too, very, not too fast times in the other events. Women's 800 was one in two flat, which was... Slowest time since the very first women's 800 in the Diamond League back in 2010. And part of that reason was the weather. Part of that was the absence of Casta Semenya. That's right. RJ Wilson got the win in that one. First woman other than Semenya or Niansaba to get a win in the Diamond League 800 since 2015. So lots to talk about from Stockholm. Uh, A very weird men's 1500 in that race as well. But we'll also be hitting on some other topics this week, including CeCe Telfer, the transgender women's 400 meter hurdles champion in the D2 ranks. Robert wrote an article about that that generated a lot of interest earlier this week. So we will be discussing that at length as well. But let's begin with Stockholm. This is Jonathan Galt. Uh, I'm joined by my co hosts and bosses, Robert and Weldon Johnson, co founders of Let's Run. Uh, Robert, you watched the Stockholm meet with us yesterday. What interested you the most? What's your biggest takeaway from that meet? The weather one. I mean, it was amazing how slow the performances were in all of the events. But as someone who's opposed to having a rabbit in every Diamond League event, maybe it's not fair for me to. I mean, I am hypocritical because I complain about having rabbits. And then when the times are slow, I'm like, oh, that meat sucked. But um, that was my first thought. I mean, AG barely broke 201, right? I mean, two. what was her actual winning Two time? flat point eight seven, And she won by a lot. Now, part of that could be the fact that, you know, the studs of the 800 are gone. But you started to see it in event after event, just how slow the winning times were. But then, so as the meet was going on, I tweeted out, like, look, they should postpone this men's 10,000 for 24 hours. I'm like, no one's running fast. The only good thing about that weather was it was chilly. That cold of weather, 54 degrees, would be good for the 10,000. But in the middle of the race, I in the middle of the meet, I'm like, they should postpone this 24 hours. I joked about starting a petition. I then did say I, if I had an athlete in that event, I would not start them. And I was on record saying before the race started that Paul Chalima, there's no way he could get the Olympic standard. I said, maybe he's good enough to get the, the world standard in this race. But in the end, he ended up wasting his time. And, and to me, it was just really, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm fearing for the future of the 10,000 after watching that event. And, um, but I, I am blown away that 20, somebody did run 2650 in that race. So as much as we say as the weather sucked, how in the hell does someone run 2650? So incredible. The interesting thing though, Robert, you talk about postponing the race 24 hours. And I think some people will say, well, logistically that it can't be done. And we're not sure about that. The thing is, I think if you postpone it by 24 hours, you would get just as many fans in the stands as you did for this race, because everyone just poured out. This race was taking place at 10 p.m. on a Thursday night after a Diamond League. So I guess I was depressed that if you're going to... A 10,000, we talk about it not being this popular these days, and the IAF maybe wanted to kill it off it eventually. This wasn't a good sign for the event, that even if you're having it as part of a Diamond League event, where the crowd looked to be pretty decent, everyone just poured out, had no interest in sticking around for this race. I think maybe if they made it a standalone event, maybe hype it up as, hey, this is a huge... 10,000, this is the best 10,000 of the year outside of Worlds, put it on a Friday night. I don't know what else is going on in that stadium. Probably not because it's over 100 years old. Probably nothing. 
you know, maybe you get more fans if you have it on Friday night. You almost certainly get better conditions. Maybe Chalimo, who ran 27.43, could have got the world standard of 27.40. Exactly, John. I mean, when I was watching that race and there was no one in the stands, I mean, that actually happens to a lot. We, we see the NCAA, the fans leave. The weird, and it just blows my mind because there's no such thing as a let's run.com for sprint fans. Flow track doesn't even do that many sprinting interviews because apparently not as many people watch them. So, but the diehard, the core of the track and field fan, like the actual, like I think full time track and field fan, maybe a distance fan, but the casual fan is a sprint fan. So there's like a dichotomy there. So uh, they need to have these events as just standalone things. I think maybe honestly, we should take a leading role. Why don't we have the let's run.com 10,000 every year or that night of the 10,000s in Europe? Why doesn't that host some Ethiopians? Like, Something where people are willing to literally change it on the weather. I mean, as we said in our in our recap, Galen Rupp and, and the Nike Alberto Salazar would never have tolerated for that. Remember when Chris Zelinski ran twenty six fifty nine at Stanford? Originally, Rupp Rupp was in that race, but originally Rupp was going to run some meet in Portland, but the pollen count didn't work, and Rupp changed. He went down to Stanford at the last minute because Alberto wanted better weather. So it, it's pretty interesting, sort of how. I don't know. Yet again, weather is important. We've seen that. Very, very important. But here's the thing, Robert. I'm curious. Say Chalima had scratched from that race and he didn't have a replacement 10K lined up. Would you Would you honestly have said, hey, this was the right decision? Or if Kipruto went out there and ran 26.50, would you have criticized him for backing out and you know for not taking on the best? Well, if I saw a 26.50 winning time, I would have been like, well, obviously it wasn't that hard to do it. But it reminded me of when Bikile ran like 26, 25 in Eugene, sort of all alone, not much rabbit help in the middle of the day or more in the morning. I mean, how I don't know how someone can do that. Uh, Ronis Caputo and Haigas Gabriel looked like they were just unfazed by the weather. It was really impressive. But would I, would I criticize him? Not if I saw all the other Americans running that slow. And I saw Julian Wanders, who's run what, 59, 13, running 27, 44. So the most disappointing thing is that these guys can't go to Worlds, yet they're like, what, the fourth or fifth fastest people in the world this year? Like, that's a joke. It just, it, I'm getting so frustrated with our sports. I mean, we're, it's a good thing you guys started with Stockholm because this CC Telfer story has me so riled up and so angry that the stupidity is going on. But I just see stupidity throughout the sport. Like, Let's have a descending order list. They want 27. The problem with the 10,000 is, yes, they're going to a straight final now. So you have to limit it. I think you could do more than 27. But, um, you, you know, the standard has to be super, super tough. But I, I, I don't know. Like, There's just no point to have a USA's 10,000 when only one or two people is going to have the standard. And USATF goes off the standard, not the world ranking. All right. Well, let's bring in Weldon Johnson here. You've been silently watching Robert Vent for the last few minutes. Any thoughts on the Stockholm 10,000 and the uh, qualifying procedure for Worlds? Do you think it needs to be changed, or is it okay how it is? But John, let's, well, yeah, let's give him – this is our 10,000-meter expert, folks. If you're a younger viewer and you weren't around in 2001 or 2003 – Weldon finished in fourth place at the USATF Nationals in the 10,000, two times. Yes, Meb Kofleski was in those races. Thank you very much for the prop introduction. Fans, thank you. It's my wife's birthday. Shout out to her. My takeaway for first big pictures, one is the world's qualifying. They say they won't go off a descending order list, so essentially that means you have to run under 2740 for when to go to Worlds. I see no point in that especially an event where time is so hard to get and weather dependent and there aren't many races. So 
why not open it up, fill the field to 27? Like if you're going to have a time cutoff, Paul Chuimo, Julian Wanders, in theory, should be in that race if they want to be. So that's one quick fix they could do. The other is, yeah, the weather really makes a difference in these time things. And it shows maybe in certain events, I see why the IWF wants to go to world rankings, but a lot of the world ranking system still is based on the time you run. But in events where the weather really affects the time, i.e. long distance races, maybe there should be more emphasis on place, competing on a good thing like that. I mean, you get fifth in that race. Yeah, you should be going to the Olympics. It's the best 10,000 meters in the world. So that's sort of, you know, one, the qualifying. Okay, this qualifying system isn't perfect, but we shouldn't search for perfect. I'm shocked you guys thought a lot of people would stay around and watch in 50 de- cold, 50 degrees at 10,000 without a lot of named stars. Like, I don't know. What do you guys think? The meat wasn't full to begin with. Maybe they have it beforehand. Some people stay, but in Haile Gabriel Selassie's running, but uh, that didn't shock me at all. I think the bigger picture with Paul Chalimo, I don't know. Is he a 10,000 meter runner, right? He got dusted by about what? 50 seconds in that race. So there's still that question. Oh, it's not that good of a run for him. But then again, he's fifth in the race and beat some good guys, destroyed the other American guys. And compared to what he ran, what, two weeks ago in Shanghai, it was a much better run. Actually, it wasn't that bad of a performance. So with four months to go to Worlds, hey, you know, he could get in shape. But it just, I think some of this emphasis emphasized that USATF still has not announced that it's going to do qualifying for the Olympics and Worlds, but in the long distance events, they should not reward solely time. Look, Chulimo didn't run 2740. The Olympic standard is 2730. The US will have nobody. So if somebody runs the time a year out in advance, like this year, they should go to the Olympics? No. Emphasis should be put on top three at the trials, top three at the world championships. And because, you know, the world championships trials this year are going to be in Des Moines, it's going to be super hot. It's highly unlikely somebody runs 2740 there. But Weldon, this isn't a USATF issue. USATF is not saying, I mean, this, their policy is we'll take the top three with the standard at the trials. That's that world championship policy. But they can't send someone who doesn't have the standard. Even if they wanted to send Paul Chalimo over Shadrach Kipchirchir, which by the way, Kipchirchir got smoked by Paul Chalimo by 36 seconds in Stockholm. But because Kipchirchir ran three thirty-five hundredths of a second under the standard last year in May 2018, he will get to go to Worlds and Limo won't, which is ridiculous. He's running a race 17 months before Worlds. So it's not indicate, indicative of his current fitness at all. And he has the inside track to Worlds. But this isn't a USATF issue because even if they wanted to send Chalimo, who, and even if Chalimo runs the 10,000 USAs and smokes Kipchirchir, they couldn't send him because he doesn't have the standard. Here's a question for you. Do you get a bonus for going to Worlds? Like, why would Kip Chirchir even want to go to Worlds? Like, wouldn't he want to rather just run? Is that a question, Robert? It's the World Championships. You don't want... Why wouldn't you want to run at the World Championships? Well, if you're going to get smoked and finish 17th. I mean, that's what the European... Hey, John, where you're from in Europe, they don't want to send you unless you're a medal chance. So, wouldn't it be better just to stay here and run Falmouth and pick up a few thousand dollars or something? You'd rather run the Falmouth Road Race than the World Championships in track and field? I don't know what to tell you, Robert. Hey, society is saying if you can't win, there's no point in doing it. That sounds like what you're saying, Robert. No, it's not. And, and well, I, I disagree with one thing you said about Chalima. I don't necessarily think he ran any better than he did last week. I don't think 2743 is any better than 1313. I thought it was probably pretty solid, to be honest. Given the conditions, given that the World Championship standard, I think, for 2015 or 2017, it didn't it used to be 2745? Like, usually that would be enough to get him hit, get him in. And the weather wasn't great. He didn't really have pace, paces at his pace. Like, 
all things considered, I don't think it was that bad. I think it showed that meddling in the 10,000 this year probably isn't going to happen if he got destroyed by Gebrouet and Kipruto. But, you know, I don't think it was a bad day, uh, first t- series 10K, you know, since 2011. My point is, what was the point of this meet, like, of having this race? Like, I, by the time I got my VPN working, and that was another thing, I was very disappointed that NBC Gold didn't show the meet. So I, I finally, I actually did hear back from the, from the Diamond League, but the email didn't come through. But the guy in charge of their TV is like, look, we're putting it on the feed. It's up to the local broadcaster to see if, if they want to keep airing it. So you pay $75 and you didn't get to watch it in the US. So I, I found a VPN, was watching it from Sweden. But it's like, I don't understand what the, it didn't look like there was any rabbiting going on. Like by the time I got on there, like what, 10, 11 minutes, they were all alone up front. Like what's the point of that meet? It's just, they thought the guys would get together and, and hit the time. Like, how do you not have rabbits? How, every diamond league meet. This is one other thing I said, like every diamond league meet has so many rabbits and there's no rabbits for that. Well, it doesn't make any sense. And w- w- why run that in terrible, since there's no one in the crowd, they're watching it. There's no prize money. Like, I guess I shouldn't be criticizing Stockholm, but there's really no reason to have, I guess the stadium could theoretically block the wind more than having it like in an open field or a, high, a college track. But it just seems like you've got to find somewhere where you know it's not windy. Yeah, but he, or, all right, your rabbiting point though, Robert. Okay, rabbits, ra- I think that definitely, if it, there was like a 2740 group, that would have been very helpful for some of those guys like Wanders and Chalimo chasing the standard. But And Kip Rudo, obviously, I'm sure he would have, would have appreciated rabbits, but that guy's so good, he doesn't need him. I mean, he's run 2646 on the roads. He basically soloed a 2721 to win the World Juniors on the ta- track last year. Like, He's just so good. He can just take it from the front. And, you know, Gebrowet was sitting on him for the entire second half, and they just decided to pick it up the last mile and blew him away. I mean, that guy is a stud. And I guess my takeaway from that is how how good do you think Kipruto is on the track? This is a guy who's run exceptionally fast on the roads. He was sixth at World Cross earlier this year. Do we view him as a gold medal threat at the world championships how is he going to do against the likes of joshua chapter guy i mean what do you guys think about his chances at worlds this year oh i'm, I'm a huge 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 fan of this guy 26 46 on the road the, you know but the central park 10k that he ran last year what did he run there john 2708 i think yeah 2708 you know how ridiculous that is so i was looking you know at, at world cross thinking this guy could could do something he ended up six he's only 19 i mean i think when you're talking the future of the event this is the guy but do you can he close usually these world championship 10,000s, even though the races have been won in close to 27 minutes or you know is 26 49 was the winning time at worlds you still need to be able to close well under 60 seconds for that last lap and i i'm not saying ronix kipruto can't do it he closed in 60 flat uh on Thursday, but that was, you know, in a 2650 race that he was running the whole thing from the front. But does he have the wheels? I think that's some question. That's a question that we don't really know yet. He said he's going to try to run a Diamond League 5000 this summer, probably. That'll give us a much better idea. But we know Chepta guy who was second behind Mo Farah in London two years ago. We know he can close pretty well. He's got good track speed. I think Chepta guy, and remember, Chepta guy smoked Kip Rudo at World Cross early this year. So I think Chepta guy still has to be the favorite. But Kibruto definitely in the, the the medal hunt for sure. Yeah, closing at sixty point that's not scaring anybody. I think the jury's still out on Ronix. He's a very good runner, but to win worlds, a lot of times it's going to come down to your kick. So what can you do at the end of a race like that? And that didn't scare anyone yesterday. It was still a very very impressive run. 
and he's shown he's kind of made to run the 10k but Cheptegay didn't watch that race and shudder at, at all all right guys here's the question for you 2017 worlds was the last time oh one that was a fast race remember 26 49 so almost identical winning time as yesterday does anyone jonathan amaze us with our bro your brilliance please guess what mo Farah closed in a 26 49.51 race i mean i i think it was pretty fast still wasn't it like 53 seconds well then give me your guess please 54 seconds we have a winner, Weldon Johnson, 55.63. That's not a winner. I mean, well, I guess he was closer than I was. He didn't get the well, number. Price is right. He was, I was, that wasn't easy, though, because he goes higher than you. He's going to be right. Yeah, Price is right style. 55. Okay, like, same thing. That's So that's, Robert just proved it there. It's like, can you close in 55 in a sub-27 race? If you can do that, you probably can win Worlds. Uh, I don't know if Kipruto can do that. I can't wait to find out, but I think it'll be very interesting. You know, assuming, I assume Ken, he's on the Kenyan team at this point, but... uh you know, you never quite know. Never assume anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Athletics can. So let's talk about the rest of the meet. And, you know, I said at the beginning of the show, the weather. Let me jump in here. First of all, you guys are being too negative. You need to relax. Maybe consider some CBD oils. No, that's a good point. I, I, I woke up just before the podcast and I'm in a bad mood. Robert needs know. CBD oils right now. It's weird. We're cranky today. We apologize. You know, we're getting, we're like, what are we going to talk about? Usually we're, we're really focused and I don't know, the meat was a little bit, I don't know if depressing is the right word yesterday, but I saw it again today. Now my bodega, you see the sign out front, CBD oils. The pharmacy has it, CBD oils. But my, even my bodega. No, no, people do not buy your CBD oils in a bodega. You know what I bought in, in the bodega one time? Batteries. And it said Energizer. And then uh, when I looked and bought them, it had like Thai writing on the back and they were like fakes from Thailand. And they didn't work real quickly. You know, if you do that with your CBD oils, you're in trouble. That's why Floyd's of Leadville makes certified CBD oils for runners. And hey, I'm not sure this offer is going to be existing in June. So today may be your final day to do it. Use code RUN2019, save 15%. Plus you won't, t- you won't test positive for some sort of contaminated supplement. Yeah, you'll know it's legit certified CBD products for runners. We also forgot to do at the beginning of the show, John did not say our special guest at the end of the show, quick 15-minute interview with Sage Kennedy, Hoko One One, ultramarathon star, my former athlete at Cornell, will be back on. He's the first two-time guest on Let's Run.com podcast history. He is running the famous Comrades Marathon next. Is it Comrades, John? Yes. Comrades. What is an English word? called comrade we use it in the english language all right it's not english language it's not english origin but come on man comrades marathon next week the world's richest oldest and most prestigious ultra marathon and just sage would also say most competitive so he will be on at the end of the show and i'm just i was wondering if weldon was wearing his hoke hoka ona uh carbon x shoes in the podcast it looks like he actually folks this is a full confession we can, again, we can see him as we're recording these podcasts. It looks like he forgot to wear them. That's probably why he's not in this good mood. He's not as relaxed because he just ran off screen. I think he's going to get his Carbon X shoes to put them on to put him into a better mood. I'm just wondering why Hoka hasn't sent me um, any free shoes. We still have some pairs we have to give away. We're going to be finishing up our exploration of the uh, Ultra Marathon scene next week with a big blowout. We're going to be talking about our the biggest races, which is what we started the exploration with our goal of so that will be coming next week but weldon you're back what were you doing were you finding your carbon x shoes or 
making a birthday cake for your wife. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't even know what you said about Carbon X, but yeah, there's still my shoes and we're giving away. We'll be giving away shoes tonight to another poster, poster of the week. That'll be coming up later in the podcast. But I saw Mike McManus, Hoka marketing manager again this week. And I felt very cool because I was like, hey, man, I got the shoes on. So Central Park, he was running. My wife was walking. She was wearing Hoka's. So, hey, everybody, consider wearing Hoka's, you know. They've been cool to let's run this month. All right. Now that we have done, been – sorry. Cut that cut that out. Sorry. It's just going to go back to the meat, but that was just – no, John, we're in a bad mood. We're keeping this in. Oh, no. I, Everyone come on. I, 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 there's verbal diarrhea here, right here. Well, we got to fix this. The raw let's run is staying out. You know, I got birthday stuff. Yeah, today. it sounds like someone who doesn't want to do his editing job <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to, yeah, let's go back to Stockholm. Uh, let's start. Wh- yeah, how wait, about Women's wait, 800? RJ Wilson. Wait, wait, wait. Did I, did I, I can't remember if in just a few seconds ago, did I do this? Cause this is my take on Stockholm winning times, two flat point eight seven, one forty six point six eight, fourteen fifty point eight two, three thirty five point seven nine. Yeah. They, they were slow. It was the slowest women's 800 winning time since the first diamond league in 2010. It was tied to the slowest men's 1500 winning time ever. Uh, 146, not fast for a men's 800 winning time. That wasn't an official Diamond League event, though. But yeah, let's let's talk uh, some women's 800. RJ Wilson wins two flat point eight seven. Looked pretty comfortable controlling that race from the front. It was basically what she does in the U.S. ranks, except now she's doing it against the best in the world because Casa Semenya and Francine Niansaba can't compete anymore in the women's 800 on the Diamond League circuit. Uh, any takeaways from that race, Robert O'Weldon? I was glad she won it. I just thought, okay, this is her chance. You know, the big three aren't here anymore. Take advantage. And she controlled the race like I thought. Obviously, the time's a little bit disappointing, but the times across the board were. And, you know, it's sort of interesting because we'll complain, oh, we don't need rabbits all the time in fast times. And at slow times, we're like, oh, this sucks. The times are slow. So I'm not going to read too much in the times. She got the win. She's the favorite for Worlds, but, you know, Worlds are four months from now. Afterwards, she sort of said, hey, you know, I'm. I've done, I think, two real track workouts, really fast speed stuff. So she's focused down the road, but she's going to have to start learning how to control the international races like she does the U.S. races and mission accomplished. I mean, one, they said we're 17 weeks out from world, so we shouldn't read too much of anything. But two things struck me. One, just as I was, as, as I think I was reading your preview, John, I mean, one thing that hit me was the 800 with the rabbits in the Diamond League Circle, particularly, and then you have Caster Semenya in it it's been just an all out time trial every week. And normally that's not what the 800 is. Normally there's a lot of strategy in the championship. There's a lot of strategy. We're still not seeing that because there are rabbits here, but I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, she's, she likes to run a fast pace, go to the front. And is she good enough? Like David Radishan is primed to lead these things for the full 800. I mean, yesterday she really only had to lead for the last, you know, what? 350. I mean, basically the last lap. So that that's my biggest concern i mean she did win by almost a half second so you know she did what she needed to do i i i I, it's weird i I think this is one of the first races of the day i mean she saw that like she didn't barely even celebrate it that also struck me like come on be a little excited i guess the time was so slow maybe she wasn't happy with it but the other thing that struck me was natoya goal i mean she was former ncaa champion for uh clemson right 
was really good. Was right behind. I think she beat AJ a couple times. Ran really fast last year. Ran like one fifty six, right, John? Yeah, one fifty six point one five. She was terrible yesterday. Two hundred three eighty nine. That's ninth place, and she was eighth in the other Diamond League meet. So, you know, if you're looking for someone that you think that might be with AJ up there with caster gone it certainly doesn't look like it's going to be her so those were the two things that struck me about that race yeah i think the one thing we just need to say i mean the women's 800 even though the weather was bad these races they're just they're going to be slow without semenya and nian saba towing people along that's just how it's going to be like too flat maybe not every race is going to be this slow but i don't think you're going to be seeing a lot of 156s anymore or even 157s it might be like 158 159 winning the thing the other thing the way aj runs you mentioned, can she do what Rudisha did? Well, I view her running more similar to late career Rudisha, the one who came back from the injuries and won the 2015 and 2016, you know, global, the world Olympic titles. He t- went to the front and controlled the race. He didn't go out and try to blow everyone away. He would control and then try to kick away the last 200. And I think that's more the style that Ajay has employed throughout her career. She's not always going out and blasting really hard. She gets to the front, protects that position and just tries to hold everyone off. Wait, 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 wait. Where the hell is David Rudisha? This is how. This is why I'm in a bad mood. Like our sport's a joke. This is an all-time great. I, I, I haven't heard anything about him. We just let's run a fail. Like, what is this guy up to? He didn't race last year at all, right? No, he's been injured. But we don't get an update. Like, is he running this year? He's only 30 years old. This is an all-time great, and we don't even know. Like, imagine if um, I don't know, Ronaldo or some soccer player. So we actually we have an update from Nick Zaccardi of NBC Olympic Talk. He said this yesterday on Twitter. David Rudisha is back training, but not at competition fitness and with no return meet set yet. Rudisha missed time after his father's death in March and, quote, further injury came back a little bit, quote, per his camp. He lost race July 4th, 2017, and since battled quad problems. So there's your answer, Robert. Wow, that wasn't even planned. That was on the... That was just spontaneous. Very good, John. John. Thank thank you, Nick, true journalist. Speaking of guys who may be retired, this never came up, but it somehow entered my mind because I keep thinking about it for the podcast. I saw Leo Manzano at the Hoka Carbon X event. You know, he's a Hoka athlete. and He was there. Uh, you know, he didn't say anything, but he did not look like a guy who's training. I assume there's going to be some announcements soon. I think he's been injured, but, you know, sort of an all, maybe not an all-time great, but like, one of America's great 1,500-meter runners, just, you know, he hasn't been running well at all recently. So uh, if he announced his retirement or stepping into a new role, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, well, no, he, he is, I would say, one of the best Americans ever. 2012 Olympic silver medalist in the 1,500 meters. I mean, how many Americans can say that? And, uh, yeah, he, he went out in the heats at USA's last year. He ran a season's best of 341. He's 34 years old. I think a lot of people would say he's been kind of washed up the last few years but in his prime tr- just tremendous kicker ncaa champion part of that world record dmr at texas i mean the guy he's a stud obviously centrowitz has accomplished more but olympic silver medal that that's you know very few americans in any distance event get to that level all right moving on guys let's we just talked about the david rudisha that the men's 800 was was not non-diamond league meet and um Stockholm, I mean, Ryan Sanchez, the young Puerto Rican, looked really good, had a huge lead, but then just shows you how much he totally tied up and, and got beat at the line by Mel Tuca. I don't think we need to talk about that. What we need to talk about, and we should have led the show with this, 
I apologize to our Canadian listeners. They are diehards. It's probably still cold up there in, in Canada. They haven't been able to get outside, enjoy the spring weather. So they're listening. They're bundled up in their podcast, listening to our podcast on a daily basis, weekly basis, excuse me. The Canadian national record for Gabrielle Deboose Stafford. Um, she just got married. She was Gabrielle. She was Gabriella Stafford. Now she's Gabriella Deboose Stafford. She kept the Deboose in the middle. Interesting. Um, she was, it was a, you know, by Diamond League standards, it was a tactical race in the sense that there were 10 women together at the bell of this race. And one of them was not Helen O'Berry. So who would have predicted that she had fallen and didn't really get back up very well. Um, Stafford was in on the rail in 10th place. Somehow she managed to go wide of the entire field and with 200 to go, had the lead coming out the final turn, still had the lead. Looked like a slight gap might do it, but then uh, too much effort, too much time, but she did end up getting past and finishing fourth, but she got a national record 1451.59 in her first outdoor 5,000. So indoors, she smashed the Canadian record in, in, in indoors outdoors. She gets it as well. She's training with Laura Muir and Andy young. I mean, she's really doing incredible. So, that was, um, you know, from a North American standpoint, the big story. But the, the win went to um, Agnes Tirop from a World Cross Country champion, 1450.82. So the, the, those times, you know, by Helen O'Berry type standards aren't really that fast. But it did show that the weather, the temperature was good for distance running. Uh, I mean, temperature, maybe you would have liked it. That's big in a 5,000, John. Yeah, but I don't know. A lot of these women looked like like pretty much every event they showed, including the distance events, you had at least one or two women on the or men on the start line just shivering. Most of the African athletes looked like they were pretty cold and didn't enjoy this meet. But yeah, the thing about Stafford, I'm going to give you some credit for this one, Robert. You said uh, to be you know the best, you need to be willing to move halfway around the world to make yourself a better runner. And that's something that Stafford has done. You know, she, I believe she moved to Scotland in September and she came back to Canada for a little bit, but I think that's where she's based out of. She's working with Andy Young, who is Laura Muir's coach. And just, if you're willing to give up your entire life and then join some other group, because you think that's going to make you a better runner, usually that's an indicator that you've got the dedication required to become one of the best in the world. I'm not saying Stafford's necessarily going to be battling for a medal at Worlds, but I don't know. She's fourth in a Diamond League, her first outdoor 5,000 of her life. She breaks the Canadian record. That's a pretty good place to start. John, you fell for the trap. I wanted to see if you talk about her and praise her, and you have. And a message board poster has called you out. You also sent out a tweet saying, what a race for Canada's Gabrielle Berdoulou Stafford in Stockholm in her first ever outdoor 5,000. She had the lead with her to go instead of national record. And someone on the message board has basically called you a racist for doing so. They've also they see I I see Jonathan Gall is adopting Rojo's praising white runners who lose. I don't know what they're talking about me praising white runners that lose. I know they're talking about when you started a thread about Jacob Ingebrigtsen getting like twelfth at the world the junior race at World Cross. Okay, but didn't we spend a huge significant portion of this podcast speaking talking about a black runner that lost Paul Chalimo? It Robert lending created. We're not racist. I mean, j- just acknowledging this thread I think is silly. Like. Look, I'm giving someone. She broke the Canadian record in her first ever 5,000. I thought that was noteworthy. My Twitter followers seem to think that was noteworthy. I think Shalane Flanagan even liked it. So, you know, so I think some of the people seem interested in that news. But if you'd rather me talk about, you know, Fantu Waku of Ethiopia getting second in 1451, maybe I'll start talking about that. Well, I thought both you guys fell for the trap. I didn't realize Robert had seen the thread, but now he's explained it himself away. 
But hey, I remember a guy named Hillary Bohr almost winning the steeplechase in Doha, and we went nuts. So it has nothing to do with race. Sure, if a white Canadian does it, it's like it's more obvious it's standing out because you don't see it. But we're like, you know, who the hell is this? But Hillary Bohr, a African American in the truest sense of the word, um, you know, an American guy from Africa, like almost won the Doha steeple and it was nuts. I got goosebumps. I was yelling at the TV. So thank you to both of them for sort of inspiring us, shaking up, being dreamers. And speaking of dreamers, that 800 Ryan Sanchez, like that's the same thing. Like 800 guy from Puerto Rico. Sure. It's a B 800, but he had the thing. I mean, I can't believe he lost it, but Hey, anyone, you know, I'm going to give anyone from a warm client climate a pass yesterday. So Natoya Ghoul, she gets a pass, but you said she ran, ran shitty in Shanghai too. But well, well, then I have a question for you though. All right, that Ryan Sanchez race, Robert sort of skimmed over it. Robert said he tied up. To me, I don't think he tied up. I think this guy thought he had the race won, thought he could jog across the line. I know you get tired at the end of the 800, but he was slowing down and looking around. I think this guy thought he had it won and didn't run all the way through the line, and that's why he got beat by Mel Tuker and Marcin Lewandowski. Wow, not my take at all. I just, I just assume he's going maybe let up a little bit, but he's he, they gained so much on him. He was definitely slowing down. I think some guys don't physically show the strain, and then he sort of leaned. But unless maybe it was like an Ingerbibson at the was that at the Euro 15 where it looked like restarted. He was so far in front he couldn't believe it. He thought maybe he had another lap to go. So unless it was something like that, like I just don't feel like a guy winning a Diamond League, even the non-official Diamond League event's going to sort of just jog it in. Like you don't jog it in. This is like the biggest thing in the guy's life up to this point. And he's only 20 years old. I just think he has beautiful form. It does. It, I will admit, John, it did not look like he was trying at all, but he was just tying up. Like that's, he was just done. I mean, it's like you see the guy first and you're like, he's not trying, but then he did. He leaned right at the line. He didn't put his arms He leaned at the line when he realized he was getting caught, though. Now, in his quote, look at his post-race comments. I've never run in conditions like that. I'm totally shocked, and I'm so freezing. It is totally crazy. I almost can't talk. I thought I could handle the temperature, but that was a mistake. None of that disputes what I'm saying. I'm suffering now a lot. I'm looking forward to my next race, and also I'll be better prepared in case I will still be in that cold. So John thinks that the guy that gave us all and tied up wasn't trying. I don't know. I think you guys should watch the replay. You watch the replay. The first time I watched it, I thought he tied up. The second time I watched it, and Tim Hutchings agreed on the international feed. He thought he looked like he kind of started thought he thinking he jog thought he could jog the race in. I would urge everyone look watch that race on replay on NBC Sports Gold. Tweet at Let's Run or post on the message board. Let us know your opinion whether you think he tied up or whether he jogged it in. Maybe we should get Ryan Sanchez on the podcast next week. Get to the truth of the matter. All right. How about men's 1500? Timothy Chariot getting the win. This was a race that Steve, Steve Cram called the worst 1500 meter diamond league race I think I've ever seen. And well, what? Yeah. I thought he was talking. I heard you, you guys say that comment. So I don't know if I was not listening at that point or listening to the NBCSN feed or what. But I heard you guys mentioned that comment in the show prep. I assumed you guys were talking about the women's 1500. No, the women's 1500 was a non-diamond league event. No, the men's, it was terrible. 335-79 winning time, only one guy under 337. So there, it wasn't a close finish. The rabbiting, it started off embarrassing. The rabbit went out in 25-1. Like, 25-1? Like, that guy, he apparently rabbited an earlier race this year. Like, 
they need to have a, a consultant for the rabbits. Like this is, I, I said, like you need to pay someone like significant amount of money, like hire me and I'll go to Europe for $50,000 a year and take care of this. Like it should never happen. 25, one, give me a freaking break. Well, yeah, the fu- the funny thing is the rabbits, Timothy sign. He's a part of Chariot and Manningoy's training group, wrong athletics club. This is his first year rabbiting diamond league. And he, I thought he did a pretty good job in Doha and, this one, he just went out way too fast. I'm sure that wasn't the plan to go out in 25-3, but he did. But then the other thing, th- this was even more egregious to me, was Cornelius Two-Way. He was the second rabbit, and they get to the bell. He's still at the front, but he's slowing down, and Teferra and Chariot, Samuel Teferra, world indoor champion, and Chariot are starting to separate towards the end of the race. And as they're going into the bell, Two-Way should have step up, stepped off the track. Instead, he just sort of keeps running forward, but slower. And the two guys have to split him and go around him. So Chariot stays on the inside and hugs the rail. But Tefera has to go out all the way out to lane three. And it looked like he kind of lost his balance as well. The TV camera cut away for a little bit. So it wasn't entirely clear what happened. But obviously, he had to go around him. And Chariot got the jump on him on the start of the final lap because he had to run around a rabbit who was sticking around the race for no reason. So I thought that was totally egregious. Those team tactics, John. Team tactics by the rabbit. It's the next level thinking. Well, yeah, rabbit, it was pretty bad. Rabbit's Kenyan, Chariot's Kenyan, Tafara's Ethiopian. I mean, well, I'm, I so, don't think so. I think it's just incompetence. I missed what happened. I, mean, I saw the stumble, so I, I, I should probably go back and watch that. I can't really comment on that. But, I mean, as a whole, this race was really going to be the Manigoys versus the Ingebrigtsons. There's two Manigoy brothers, three Ingebrigtsons, but one of the Ingebrigtsons didn't show. And then I realized that, like, you know, not all the Ingebrigtsons are necessarily in great shape yet. Um, so you've got Jacob Ingebrigtsen, who was running most of the race in like eighth place, had a big last lap though to get third, 337.30. He was happy with that. But then you have George Manning guy, actually your little brother beat big brother. He ran 343 for eighth. Then Ingrid Ingebrigtsen was ninth. And then Elijah Manning guy in 10th, 330, 43, 345 and 348. So if I told you before the race, that three of the four Ingebrigtsen Manning Boy brothers wouldn't even break the equivalent of a four-minute mile. Nobody would have believed me. It's crazy. I mean, Elijah Manningoy, he was near the front towards the start of the race. He won in Doha, the season opener in Doha. He's the reigning world champion. He ran 348. He ran his second 800 in 208. I mean, what happened to this guy? He just fell all the way back in the field. Looked like he gave up. I mean, is he hurt? What? I don't understand how he can finish 10th and run 348 in a Diamond League race run in 335. It was just insane. But you mentioned Jakob Ingebrigtsen. I was pretty impressed by him, actually. It kind of reminded me Chariot showed up to the first Diamond League in Doha and wasn't at 100%, missed some training, but he sort of hung around. And then the last lap, he kicked hard and he wound up getting second. And this is basically what Ingebrigtsen did. He wasn't running with the lead pack. I mean, Chariot was running towards the front in Doha, so it was a little different, but Ingebrigtsen was just hanging back and then suddenly he's just mowing people down the last 200. I thought that was a pretty good kick. I th- he showed some determination there. And if he gets some training under his belt, you know, maybe he gets close to the chariot and might challenge for some wins this year. John, I thought it was brilliant. I, I really thought compare him to some of these other guys. And you said exactly right. You, you compare it to chariot from the first race. He's not in great shape. It's early in the season. He, but he's a, such a young guy, but he knows what he's in. He just runs conservatively in the back and then has a big last lap, and he gets a lot out of that. Whereas these other guys go out hard and blow up, and they just wasted their time. I feel like by running that race smart, executing it, A, you gain confidence, 
be, you always want to finish. If you finish faster than you started, I feel like you're getting more out of the workout physiologically. You're not just packing it in. So I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought also it was cool at the finish. Like he puts up his hands in celebration. You know, you'll see some of these guys do this who finish second in races and you're we're like, what's the deal? Is it like a cultural thing? You know, sometimes we'll see some like Kenyan guy do it. In this case, it's this Norwegian kid. And you're just like, why is he celebrating? But third place was a good run for him. He almost beat Suleiman. He almost got second. And do you guys remember how old he is? 18. Yeah. I'm mean, thinking like, oh yeah, he's 20 now. No, like you don't go from 17 to 20 in one year. He's now only 18 years old. This is his first race of the year. His training's not going great. And he's second in the Diamond League. As for Manningoy, I'll give him a pass. The weather. I'm getting anyone from a warm climate. Well, Kenya's not that warm in the highlands, but can be. You know, the joke is Kenyans don't like running in cold and rain. So anyone from a warm climate gets a pass. This was the Canadian meet. Aaron Brown won the 200. Hey, Aaron Brown's the real deal, man. That guy can medal at Worlds. He's pretty good. I didn't say he wasn't good, but yeah, he's usually not winning these things. You know, he ran better than some other guys relative to what they've been doing early this season. A pass on all the times. And we should have realized it in the first event. I mean, they had the 400. Michael Norman runs 44.53. That's decent for most people. That's more than the second he ran in the season opener at Mount Sac. So he should have realized, and he won by a ton. So we should have realized it was going to be a slow day. But to me, another thing that stood out, if we're talking sprints, was Dean Asher Smith. I mean, she destroyed a really, you had the world champion, the Olympic champion. You had it the, the entire field. Th- that 200 was stacked, and she won by half a second. That was impressive. So she's really running well. But w- you talked about a celebration, Weldon, and no one's talked about this. There's no mention in our, in our recap of let's run, I don't think. The 400 hurdles, Carson Warholm wins. This is awesome. 47.85. He wins the race. There was a, a, a woman from the uh, meet organizers. It was kind of interesting. They person they had handing out a hat and flowers. She wasn't dressed like really scantily like you often see sometimes in these European meets. She seemed like a professional like business person handing out the flowers. But she ha- tries to hand him the flowers, but she realized she shouldn't do that because he was wearing one, sort of one of those spandex top tops. He unzips it, puts it all the way down below his waist, and I. Uh, the, the first thing I thought was he must have an under armor. I mean, excuse me, a underwear sponsor. Cause he took his pants, his top off all the way to expose the top of his underwear and then flexed his muscles. That was bizarre, right? I don't know. I just think the guy likes to celebrate. I mean, remember he had the crazy scream celebration when he won worlds in 2017, this one, you know, he's, he's from Norway, so he wasn't bothered by the cold. And remember, he won his world title, actually, on a rainy, cold night in London at the World Championships. So he said he loved, you know, he, he was, he yeah, he undressed and then started screaming. I thought it was hilarious. And then his post-race interview, I looked at his flash quotes on the Meet website. The first, first four words of his post-race interview were, I am very good. And the guy's not wrong. I mean, he, won, he ran 47.85. He was the only guy under 49 seconds. Only two guys in the race broke 50 seconds. Now, granted, the two big dogs, Rye Benjamin and Abdurrahman Sambo, won in this race, but running 47.85 in the conditions in Stockholm, you'd have to think he's pretty close to the same level of those guys who, you know, Benjamin was 47.7 in uh, Shanghai and Sambo was 47.2. So, uh, you know, pretty good run by Warholm. Great celebration. See, he's Norwegian. Did well in the cold weather. Proves my point. Warren Hurls is going to be amazing this year. I mean, he if, if the weather's like this, which it won't be in Doha, I mean, he, he could possibly win it. 
All right, so let's now talk to what we love to talk about always on Let's Run.com podcast, the women's 400 hurdle race at the NCAA Division II Championships. And I almost don't even know where to begin on this one, but um, John, why don't you tell people what happened there? It's hard for me to say it. If I say something, no matter what I say, is going to be offensive to someone. So John, factually, please describe what happened at that race. Okay, well, the race was won by a woman named Cece Telfer competing for Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire. Cece was born male and competed for her first three years of college on the men's team, though we understand that she has identified as a woman uh, since at least her freshman year. And this year, she in 20, January 2018, she decided to quit the men's team. She didn't, I don't think she was enjoying the sport. She wasn't really showing up to practice that much. Didn't sound like she was very dedicated from the interview that you did with her coach. But this, and then in the fall of 2018, the start of the 2018-19 track season, she decided to come back out for the team, but for the women's team this time. And she spent the entire 2018-19 season competing as a woman. And she won the NCAA title in the 400 hurdles uh, this past weekend down in Texas. And the reason why we're talking about this is because... As a man, she competing in the men's division, she wasn't really that great. She wasn't close to qualifying for nationals, really. And then she comes out and really dominated the the women's championships and wins the national title of the 400-meter hurdles. And I think the issue we have with this, it's not that anyone choosing to identify as a woman, that, that's not a problem. It's not an issue of like being against transgender rights or anything like that. I think we all support... Uh, CC's choice to identify as a woman and to be, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. The problem here is that we don't really know. There are two things. I think one is the natural genetic biological advantages that someone born a male might have versus someone born with a female. And the other problem is that we don't really know what the NCAA policy is on this subject. So the NCAA does have a transgender handbook and that handbook they say that for someone competing, completing a male-to-female transition, such as CC, they have to undergo one calendar year of testosterone suppression treatment. But it doesn't say that's all we know about it. It doesn't say how that treatment has to be administered, if it's going to be checked by the NCAA or a different authority, if there's a certain level that she needs to bring her testosterone levels below. None of that is clear. Robert has reached out to the NCAA for clarification on this issue. They've essentially stonewalled him. They won't give him any information on it. And so I think that's why people are frustrated because we don't know. The the rule on this is just maddeningly vague. We don't really know what the situation is. And I think to a lot of people, it looks unfair that someone born as a man and who competed in the men's division for the last three years can just come in and win a women's national title. Very good summary, John. I mean, I think it's very simple, folks. Mediocre as a man, national champion as a woman. Now, I'm very happy for Cece personally that she's really thriving as a woman. She no longer has to be referred to as a man when she does men's track, and that's why she quit the team. She didn't like that. That was the only part of her life where she was referred to as a man. And she's showing up at practice. She was a model athlete, according to the coach. She lifted weights, whereas before she was only showing up at practice one or two days a week. But the reality is she's running slower now than she did as a man, and now she's a national champion simply from changing her gender. And I guess you could say she's having a higher work ethic. But the NCAA will not confirm 
what Joanna Harper, I reached out to Joanna Harper, who has made the transition successfully from male to female. And, and, and Joanna has told me that, um, that their NCA has not set its maximum T level for trans women. And I don't believe they do any independent verification of hormone levels. So it pounds sounds like as long as you have a doctor's note saying you're producing your levels to some degree, you can compete, which is a joke. Even the coach said it was very vague and a lot of the impetus was on them and the university. So to me, this is crazy, but there's a few things that I have a real problem with. I mean, the idea that men have been taking so much from women over these years. Now they're going to take the sports away. It's just crazy to me. But there's a few things that really bother me. One, John, I let you introduce it because no matter what I do, people criticize. I didn't mention that she was born a man. I said she competed the first three years and was raised as Craig Telfer because I was trying to not say she was born as a man because I thought that might be offensive to her. I thought she may view, I was born a woman, but people just didn't recognize that fact. But people said, no, it's actually disrespectful to mention her male name. It's like considered sexual harassment. So I lose there. But now uh, I'm on let's run and people were saying look at the photo you used it's not feminine enough and i'm like what are you talking about they're mad that i used a photo that was from it's the photo that the ncaa tweeted out of her on the victory stand and i want to read what i just wrote on the message board Amazing. I used a photo that the NCAA tweeted out after she won. You're mad that I'm not going out of my way to photo to find that makes her look more feminine. First of all, have you ever thought that she doesn't look more feminine because she was born a man and she's six feet, feet, two inches tall. But the fact that you want me to go out of my way to make her look more feminine is like proof that this is all insanity. Look feminine. Are you kidding? That's actually a stereotype that feminists have been fighting against for decades. The Castor Semenya supporters, even the Serena Williams fans have been saying for years that they are criticized that she, these athletes are criticized for being too masculine and yet you want me to make her look more feminine for years sexist men thought women shouldn't do certain sports and they shouldn't look too masculine and feminists rightly stood up against that yet in this case you want me to purposely try to make her look more feminine well that's the exact opposite of what feminists have been fighting for for the last 50 years i don't care how someone looks i care about whether they have an unfair biological advantage the idea that a female runner like yourself can acknowledge this that a man has a huge biological advantage is almost beyond me the reality is CC is running slower now than she did as a man, and yet she's the national champion. So that's point number one. I mean, it's just really upsetting. I mean, it's just – I don't understand how people can can not understand that. The other thing that bothers me is that everyone's being disingenuous here. When Franklin Pierce, when she wins this race, she's put up on their website. She's celebrated as a national champion. But no one's saying that she's the first transgender athlete to win. They ignore the fact that she was on the men's team for three years. They ignore the obvious biological advantage that she has. And yet, in a few months, apparently, the NCAA has been sent out a feature writer, and they're going to be featuring her in some NCAA quarterly as this sort of modern-day Jackie Robinson or Rosa Parks or something. So you can't have it both ways. If you're going to, in the, if you want to present her as this great heroine and this great accomplishment. Well, then why are you hiding it in all your press releases? Yeah, I think people are way too sensitive. I mean, it's a sensitive topic. And then when you combine it now with the intersex thing that's going on, it, it, it's pretty crazy. But now you're supposed to pick certain photos that make her more feminine. I mean, that's sort of crazy. And then she's suppressing her testosterone to compete, which is considered okay. But in the case of Castor Semenya, which is a different thing because she's intersex, People are saying it's cruel to make her take testosterone. It just sort of shows that this, I don't know, black, this 
thing that we thought was black and white and binary, sex isn't. And the intersex thing is different, but then transgender is completely different because biologically, you know, she is male, right? Or was, yeah, was, is male, was born male. And the only way to get rid of that is to suppress her testosterone. So it's the only way for her not to have an unfair biological advantage is to suppress her, suppress her testosterone. Then others take it farther and say, hey, hey, even once she suppresses her testosterone, she's going to have bone density, some other stuff that s- still gives her an unfair advantage. And I'm all up for ha- letting people discuss that, say what they want about it. But some people just want to, you know, shout you down and say you're a bigot, you're a racist or whatever if they disagree with your opinion, which is sad and unfortunate. But uh, yeah, what she went through and what she's done, it can't be easy, right? I mean, I applaud her. It sounds like she's in a much better place mentally this year and a better athlete, a better student. So that part is good. Just the question is, you know, should she have the right without firm guidelines in place to win NCAA titles? My personal opinion is no. Right. And I wish the NCAA would just be a, just directly answer my questions, which they don't do. They're like trying to, everyone's like trying to hide around the bush and then yet at the same time celebrate her. And yeah, it's, 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 I'm great that she's found her true self and is happy. That's fantastic. If I was coaching her, I would, I think I would say, this is great. CC for you. Let's work hard. Let's do this. But I would try to get her to say, I don't think this is fair. Like let's don't do the championship meets, but Hey, you know, nowadays people are afraid to say anything that someone doesn't agree with. Um, to me, it's really simple. I, I think that we, we could go down to almost like, well, I, I don't even know if I want to say it. Like my friend who was very liberal and Hillary used to work for Hillary, you know, she's an athlete though. It was like, I, I think it's women's bodies. If we would acknowledge the fact that the people that have the potential to potentially give birth to a baby are not going to be as good at the elite level sports as men. And that, do you have this potential? I'm not saying infertile people shouldn't be allowed to compete in women's sports, but do you have this potential? Then that's how you classify the women. And that would not include Custer Semenya. She has internal testicles. If anything, maybe she could father a baby. She could never give birth to a baby. Um, same thing here with Cece. I mean, maybe it's not that simple. But you know, I, no, I just it's think- not. It's not that simple, Robert. Because the difference, the difference between the categories, the reason we have men's and women's categories isn't because men can father children and because women can give birth to children. That's not the reason for the dividing line. The reason is because of testosterone and because of the differences in muscle mass and blood and all that stuff that testosterone provides that gives men advantages. All I'm saying is that originates from the women's unique ability that should be celebrated to give birth. I think it's, that's it's an I, I think you're sort of conflating things there. Okay, I just think it's not total si- there's not going to be a simple easy no. dividing line. That's, but, I think that's. But, but why hide with NCAA? Why won't the NCAA be honest about what they're doing? Anyways, I, 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 the, and one other thing we haven't even talked about is it may soon be illegal, you know, to to force people to take any testosterone thing. But I, I want to conclude with this. There was a post on, on the bottom of a, of a Washington Post editorial by Martina Navratilova, Sonia Richards Ross, and Dorian Camp- Coleman Lambert. Great editorial saying how we need to protect um, women's sports. I suggest you Google it, Washington Post. You'll find it. And one of the comments there, and I'll read it some excerpts. I've slightly edited. I, I love this. I think eventually we'll realize that treating transgender ideology like other race, sex, or sexuality-based civil rights movements is a mistake. It's more akin to a religion based on emotional appeal. What I mean is the issue should be protecting people's rights to believe whatever they wish, as we do with religion, but resisting this push that everyone else must change their understanding of reality. 
Right now, the push is for everyone to view someone else's personal belief of their gender and identity above biological reality, even in situations where it hurts women and almost never hurts men. Mutual respect and freedom of conscience are important. I support the right for people to believe whatever they wish, like with religion, and I don't relatively actively try to interfere in religious practice or respect people's decisions. But gaslighting people by saying their own, their eyes deceive them or trying to force regressive debunked concepts like the Victorian nation of, ser- of sexed brains and calling it science should stop. I think that was an excellent comment and maybe one we should just conclude on. Okay, I think we're done with CC. Can we move it on? Real quickly, thread of the week. I think we'll end there. We won't have deleted thread of the week, but I was looking at the top threads. And this one came on hot. I mean, this was hot while the Diamond League meet was going on yesterday. Ryan Hall, 2558 5K. Well, so now he's he's run a five hour marathon a couple of years ago, and now he's run a 2558 5K. But he can probably lift more weights than all of us combined. Yes. If you look in the let's run.com YouTube channel, I did an interview with Ryan, the Boston marathon about how to get bulk bulked up. Maybe, maybe this summer, that'll be my goal to follow that. Um, so that thread in one day is the top thread of the week, but it wasn't started by a registered user. So how can we give that guy carbon X shoes? So then I went, went on down and post number two for the most popular thread of the last week. The Hikers Who Died on Everest and what it says about the Instagram era. And this one was started started by a, I don't know if they want to call him a troll, one of the most popular or controversial, or I don't know what you want to call him, much run posters, Jamin, Jamin, excuse me, Jamin. So I was like, wow, can I, can we give, you know, there's some discretion here in who we give the prize to. So it'd be kind of controversial to give Jamin the prize. I like Jamin, but some people are like, oh, post too much, whatever. Then I went down the next one, Lost Hawaii Hiker Found After Two Weeks. That one was by an unregistered poster. Post number four, Donovan Brazier has become skinny after joining NLP. I click on that one, started by Jamin as well. So two of the top four threads started by the same guy. I think that's it for sure. Jamin, winner of a Hoka Carbon X Shoes. If you guys want to win some shoes, start some threads under a registered name. But, you know, they're both interesting topics to discuss. People are really fascinated by this the log jam on the top of Everest. And there's a couple threads on that. And, you know, what does it say about us? I haven't read the Brazier thread yet, but people seem obsessed. People get up, think we're only obsessed about female body types. People are very obsessed about male body types, what the runners look like, their weight, that sort of stuff. So both those are pretty interesting threads. Yeah. The, the fix, the picture of the hikers on, on Everest is just a phenomenal image. Just the line. It's like a, line at Disneyland to go on a roller coaster and this is the summit, the highest peak in the world. It's just phenomenal. Dominic Brazier, I don't know. I didn't he didn't strike me as being particularly different from how he looked last season when I watched him race in Doha. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but he still ran pretty well. So I don't really have anything to say on his body type. Yeah, I haven't read the thread yet, so I need to clearly. But hey I think that'll be it for this week. Next week, we got the NCAA Track and Field Championships from Austin, Texas. Rojo will be there. Rojo's got something to say, it looks like. Don't forget, folks, we'll be concluding this podcast with an interview with my former athlete, Sage Kennedy, who will talk about his chances of being the second American man to win the Comrades Marathon. American man has not won Comrades in 25 years, dating to 1994, and Alberto Salazar won it. So he'll talk about can he pull off the huge upset 
If he does, he'll be getting a black page on Let's Run for a full week. Wow. So During please. NCAA week. Wow. Oh, no, it's after NCAAs. No, it's after NCAAs. Oh, sorry, sorry. So we'll be back early next week, Monday or Tuesday, to have a podcast to preview, preview NCAAs. Camille Heron, Let's Run visitor, did win Comrades, and I don't know. We didn't give that the what it was due. And she's running this year as well, so should be exciting. Oh, I didn't even know that. See, if we actually start, if we give a proper preview to one of these races, that's what we'll show the ultras have arrived. But I think Robert, you know, secretly, he's plugging, promoting Sage behind the scenes. We haven't, you know, he sort of did this on his own, the Sage interview. But he's never probably going to coach, have coached a Boston Marathon champion. But if Sage somehow could pull this off, I assume it's really highly unlikely, Robert would just like bask and be like, yeah, you know, I, I set this up. I'm responsible. But also, hey, Running Warehouse, we're going to have a prediction contest next week for NCAAs. You want to enter that. But till next week, Sage Candidate interview next. Thanks, guys. Sage, thanks for joining us. You helped us kick off the month, our month-plus expiration of the ultra marathon scene sponsored by Hoka One One. Thus, it's only fitting that you help us wind it down. Um, you know, but to be honest, uh, the real reason why we're having you on, on this week's podcast is we're just over a week out from Comrades, uh, and this is the one ultra marathon in the, that Weldon and I have always known about because we can remember Alberto Salazar winning it um, way back when we were in college in 1994. So you're running this year's race. We wanted to touch base with you again to see how the training's been going, how everything's going. But uh, welcome back to the podcast, Sage. I hope you realize what a great honor this is, the first person to be a guest two times on the Let's Run.com podcast. Oh wow! Thanks. No, it's a it's an honor, and uh, yeah, excited to talk ultras on on Let's Run here. So thanks for having me. So, you know, we're what eight or nine days out. Is the race on Saturday or Sunday? Uh, I believe it's on Sunday, but of course it's in South Africa, so it's uh, half a day ahead almost of U.S. time. Um, but yeah, nine days out. About. Hopefully, you figure out whether it's Saturday or Sunday. I don't want you showing up the start line a day early, but. Um, you know, how are you feeling heading into the race? I mean, I know nine weeks ago you ran the Rotterdam Marathon. You ran 223 there, but you've had nine weeks to, to get fitter since then. How has the training been going? Um, so how do you feel feeling heading into what we call the world's oldest, largest, and richest ultramarathon? I also say it's the most competitive, hands down, ultramarathon in the world. I feel good. Um, Rotterdam was a disappointment, but basically... I knew after Rotterdam I was going to be running Comrades, and uh, I, you know, it's kind of a build-up for Comrades. I was like, okay, this was a good long training run. I'm going to do some more 26-mile training runs in training, but a lot slower. Like I did one out here in Boulder on the hills that you know just ran like a 2:36 marathon, uh, six-minute pace, and then I paced at Carbon X uh, Hoka Oneone Project Carbon X uh, four weeks ago. Um, I paced 36 miles. My teammate Pat Reagan there was was running the 100k, so I paced him at about 605 mile pace for 36 miles, and that was a good training run too for comrades. I always had you know comrades in the back of my mind, so putting in some good long runs, uh, the mileage I've got a lot of 110, 120 mile weeks. Uh, nothing too crazy, but I could really only compare my fitness to when I last did comrades, which was in 2015, which was an up year, and that year I actually ran 219 at Boston. Got 16th place at Boston, but it was only five weeks before Comrades, and I'm starting to think that that I couldn't recover in five weeks. Whereas hopefully, I'm hoping nine weeks between a marathon and Comrades is uh, is going to help me more. And I know what to expect this year too, because I've done the course and 
uh, it's brutal. So you you talked about running some stuff at like thirty six miles at six oh five pace. Wow! Like so, heading into the race, do you have a a a, a pace goal that you're going to shoot for? It's what a fifty five mile race, or are you just going to run run with the leaders? How, how are you going to approach the race strategically? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, with the time goals, you can't. I mean, you got to react to tactics. It's more about place than time. But you know, statistically. I know on mo- most uphill years at Comrades, again, it's a net uphill race, uh, you know, to be in contention for top three or be in contention for the win, you definitely have to run under 540, five hours and 40 minutes. Uh, it's about 55 miles, maybe a little under 55 miles exactly. So that works out to being a uh, six, 11 mile pace average. Again, though, keep in mind, there's 6,000 feet of climbing during the race because um, it's it's a hilly race and it, it could be quite hot. So you know, if it's really hot, maybe you go out a bit more cautious, but generally you're keying off the, the favorites and a lot of the, the, you know, tough, a lot of guys are really tough. So there'll be a pack of like 30 guys rolling through the first half and around 250, which is pretty much right on 540 pace. Uh, the second half doesn't have as much climbing, but there's a lot of attrition in the second half. So, you know, you're keying off that, that main contender pack. If you want to be top three, top five, you definitely need to run way under six hours. Uh, so I kind of keep the the mile splits uh, with that in mind. We'll roll through the first marathon probably. I think last time we rolled through in about 242 for the first marathon. And there was probably about 4,000 feet of climbing in that. So it was a big uphill marathon. And then you're not even at the halfway point. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look at my splits, but it's mainly going by heart rate and mainly by keying off the other guys and just seeing how you feel during the race. So you wear a heart rate monitor. What would your heart rate be at for a race like this? Uh, I'm not a diehard heart rate person because uh, sometimes the, the heart rate monitor screws up. I have like a Garmin uh, 935, so it's a wrist strap heart rate monitor. Um, I monitor it relatively a little bit. Like early on, there's some really big hills. And if you hit a heart rate spike over you know, the intensity that you'd run a, a single marathon at, you know it's probably too hard. So for me, you know, that's like in the high 80% type of range, 88, 80, 90%. That's getting close to marathon pace, which is really close to my lactate threshold, which I know I can't sustain for more than, uh, you know, basically an hour, two hours. So, you know, that would be kind of like a suicide intensity. Uh, so, you know, I might glance at it, but I also kind of just know by how hard I'm breathing uh, you obviously do not want to get any anaerobic contribution going on. And you're mainly worried about, uh, you know, sheer muscle fatigue in your legs, having a, a muscle cramp, but you're also worried about burning through your glycogen too fast. Uh, so I need to keep it more in the maybe 80% of maximum heart rate type of intensity, but it's kind of a crapshoot if you could sustain that for five and a half or six hours. Um, it's it's going to hurt a lot, basically. So but back to the training question, you know, never having never trained or even run an ultra, I, I wasn't really, uh, I guess my coming into this interview, I was like, I don't know how I would know if I was ready to go. I mean, when I was doing a marathon, I always did a, th- try to do a 30 K at race pace. So basically run 75, 70, 75% of the distance at race pace. And I imagine you can't really do that for an ultra. I mean, that would be what four over 40 miles in this race. I mean, you did do 36 miles. So how do most ultra runners sort of know that they're ready to go or how do you personally know you're ready to go? I mean, you did the, the carbon X thing. So maybe did that work out perfectly for your training or what would you normally do if you didn't have to do that to know, Hey, 
you know, do you have like a signature workout that you like to do to know you're ready to go for a 55 mile race? Um, you know, honestly, it's, it's more fickle <laughs> and I haven't done, you know, I've only done comrades once. It's my only road ultra that I've actually done. And most of the ultras I do are really like mountainous trail ultras. So you totally throw pace out the window, but I mean, you definitely want to spend, you definitely need to some long runs in training and you definitely want to average high mileage weeks. So you're, you know, averaging over a hundred miles a week for hopefully months at a time. Uh, you're putting in long runs that, yeah, they're not going to be even close to 75 or 80% of the distance of the ultra because that would beat you up too much. Um, although I have heard some of the South African guys, uh, Bamusa Matumbo, who's one of the favorites to win. I heard he does a couple 50K to 70K long runs in training. Uh, so that would be, what what's 70K? Uh, well, 50K is 31 miles. I think he's getting, he, he does some like 40 mile long runs, basically. Yeah, 70K is over 40 yeah. miles. Um, but then someone like Camille Heron, who's, uh, who won, uh, last up year, American Camille Heron, she says she doesn't do anything longer than like 22 mile long runs in training at a single time. But I know she averages well over 100 miles a week. And what some ultra runners do do is they do back to back long runs on a weekend. So say, uh, you do, she does, Camille does a 22 miler on Saturday. Then the next day she does a hard 18 miler. So you're doing like back to back hard long runs and you put in a big weekend where you did, you know, 30 or 40 miles. But, uh, especially for the longer ultras, you're never going to get, you're not going to run the full distance in training. So it, it's more of a crapshoot. Um, and if you do the long runs, like I do, I did some 22 mile long runs, 26 mile long runs. I do them at a faster pace. So I say, okay, you know, I did this marathon in training at six flat pace. You know, my goal race pace for comrades is 6.15 mile pace. So, you know, hopefully when I taper, I could hold that for the, the longer distance. But, you know, Carbon X worked out really well. It was a great uh, event. It made it easy for me because we had aid station support and the miles just flew by. Uh, if I was training by myself, though, I definitely would have done a hillier route because comrades all about the paved hills. So Carbon X was a pretty relatively flat course, uh, at least compared to comrades. But it was good, I think. So, you know, 13th, four years ago, what's the goal this year? Actually, when I was coaching, I don't know if I ever made you do it, but I made a lot of guys do it. I had to say, come up with an A goal, a B goal, and a C goal. So let's let's do that. Sort of something you'd be satisfied with, something that is aspirational, and then the dream. Yeah, so uh, I, I still do that too, the ABC goals. I learned that from you, Rojo. Um, so, yeah, the first goal, uh, I guess the C goal, uh, is just improve. So, you know, logically – significantly under i ran like 602 last time it was a pretty bad meltdown in the last 20 miles uh so i'd like to be under six hours at least significantly under six hours and be top 10 uh because like i said i was 13th i was really 15th but there were two guys that that uh tripped drug tests on the day positives um in the top 10 that year uh so you know top 10 under six hours would be great uh as a seagull uh b goal i'd say would be to be top five I'd be really, really happy if it, if I was top five. Uh, it's, you know, it's such a competitive race. There's so many really great South African runners, especially they do the race every year. They peak for it every year. They know the course, uh, really well. So it's, you know, it's competitive. There's a lot of prize money. You're starting to make more prize money when you get top five as well. So that's, that's a big incentive. Uh, and, and, you know, sub 545 on the time goal there, uh, kind of corresponds to about top five if you run in the low 540s. Then, you know, the pie in the sky goal, ultimate A goal would be to, to try to win. Um, 
I'm trying to say how realistic that is for me at this point. Uh, you know, it's, it's extremely hard to win. It would be great. Uh, maybe I should just say top three. That would be a huge honor. Um, so yeah, top three, sub 540, a goal, but be in contention to win. You kind of have to make a, a choice during the race. Do I want to try to be top three and win? Or do I just want to be top 10? And if there's a break in the last 20 miles, you could risk it all like I did in 2015 with Max King. I, I risked it all. And I said, okay, I want to be, I want to try to win. And I totally imploded the last 20 miles. Uh, so I might be more conservative this year. If, if, I, if, if there was a betting house putting odds on, of a win, how big would your odds be? Uh, I would not be betting on me for the win. <laughs> I, would, not, I would bet on uh, Matumbo to, to win, probably. Hundred to one. Oh no, no! I'd say the odds are better. The odds are better. I mean, this—it's not like running a marathon major. Like you know, I'd say, oh, you know, there's a zero percent chance of me winning Boston or New York. Like there's probably a zero percent chance of me getting top five at Boston or New York. Whereas I'd be like, I could be top ten, maybe. You know, I could be top ten at Boston, maybe on like a bad weather year. Like you know, I was sixteenth at Boston one year, but uh, you know, it's it's not as deep as as a marathon major for sure. Uh, so there's a chance I could win, but it's still very unlikely. Uh, I'm more likely probably to win like a trail ultra, much more likely to win UTMB or something like that. And you, you talked about sort of the South Africans being the biggest threats to the win. I mean, they've won seven years in a row. You talked about Matumbo's one up and down repeat winner the last two years. I mean, do you know who all the key players are? Like my brother was asking like, Hey, Hey, if we write a preview of this race next week, is there a list of elites that are in the race? Like you can break it down like a world marathon major, or is it kind of happenstance to figure that out? You know, honestly, I haven't researched all the favorites. Most of them, you're correct, are South African, at least on the men's side. Uh, obviously on the women's side, we have Camille Heron who, who won the last up year, but yeah, uh, Bamusa, he won the last up year. He won last year in the down year. I believe he won two oceans, uh, ultra marathon a couple months ago as well. Definitely a favorite. Um, there's some lists. I think, and if you look in some of the South African blogs, uh, they do a big, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of press conferences leading into the race where they bring up all the favorites and, you know, the list is quite long. Uh, and yeah, most of the, I think with South Africa that, you know, these guys do it every year for the last five or 10 years, they have, they're super experienced on the course and they train all year just for this race. So it's a really big deal down there. And, you know, these guys are good. A lot of them run, a lot of them haven't run maybe to their full potential in a marathon, but a lot of run maybe like 215 or so. And so they have plenty of speed uh, to win comrades, I'd say. And what about the logistics? When do you leave? I mean, it's a long way away. And what type of fueling do you do to, during a 55 mile race? Yeah. So I'm going to leave uh, this weekend. Uh, you know, it was kind of with the, the plane type plane ticket prices, uh, you know, ideally I probably should be leaving a little earlier, but I'm flying through Europe on the way there. So I'm going to actually take a day and try to reset and get a lot of sleep and then do the 10 hour flight from Frankfurt to Johannesburg the next day. So it's going to be like a two or three day travel day. Uh, I'm leaving this Sunday. I'll get there basically Wednesday, uh, after spending the night in Europe. So, you know, try to adjust the jet lag as quickly as possible, try to survive the journey. And, uh, gosh, what was the question again? <laughs> Fueling during the race. Like, like do they have water stations? Do you need an aid? Do, do your parents go out to help hand out bottles? How does this work? So it's, it's really great. There's a, uh, basically an aid station every two miles. Uh, I carry my own, like fa basically a fanny pack, <laughs> Nathan, Nathan belt, we'll call it uh full of gels. 
my own gels. So the, the spring energy Canterbury, which are a hundred calories a pack. So I'll maybe have like six or seven gels in my fanny pack that I'll be taking, uh, like one every 45 minutes. And then I'm also going to have being part of an elite team. You actually get custom fluid bottles or your own fluid bottles that get handed to you at some of the aid stations. So I think we have eight fluid handoffs, uh, that I could fill with electrolyte fluid, which, which also has carbs and calories and sugar in it. So I'm looking at getting in over 300 calories an hour uh, of mostly carbohydrate. And then the regular aid stations for the masses and for us as well, they have these these uh, bags full of water, basically. They're like little plastic tubes full of water, and you bite into it, and you could drink water. Uh, they have electrolyte fluid. Some of the aid stations have, like, Coca-Cola and potatoes. Um, and then they have, like, maybe, like, sports gummy chews and candy and then uh, there, it's like a major marathon though. They're, they're really well stocked aid stations. Uh, as an elite though, you don't want to be slowing down too much. So you're running through pretty fast, you know, six minute mile pace through the aid stations. But the thing that really impressed me with comrades is these guys in the lead pack will help hand out water to their competitors. So we're running up to an aid station, big pack of 30 guys. And the guys on the inside who are close to the aid station will start grabbing these, these flasks of water. And they'll hand them over to to their competitors off to the side. Uh, so everyone's helping everyone make sure they get the hydration they need. Uh, you know, if you want something and you can't reach it at the aid station, that they'll your competitor will hand it to you. And a lot of these guys are coming out of poverty. They're competing for thirty eight thousand dollars for the win, uh, and they were really generous. Um, another example of that is my bib was coming undone on the back of my jersey while I was running. And this competitor offered, he's like, hey, your, your bib's coming in on you. He, he pinned it for me back onto my jersey because he didn't want it to fall off. Well, that's cool. And I think there's also like a huge like $25,000 bonus for the first South African. So Yeah, there's time bonus or there's a course record bonus. There's uh, sometimes inner club bonuses uh, for a lot of the so- native South Africans. And then, you know, full disclosure, like I, I would also get a, a bonus uh, if I if I placed really well too. So it's more than just that open prize money. <laughs> on the line last question i promised weldon to keep the, the interview under 15 minutes and it's already over that so um if you do win let's say your dreams become reality sage you'll be only the second american man to win it and the other man was oregon's own you're a fellow oregonian alberto salazar um given your strong anti-doping stances sage how would it feel to be <laughs> on a list with alberto salazar as an american champion of comrades of comrades uh, I mean, I'd, I'd be hugely honored to win comrades. Uh, and yeah, to be on the list with a guy that ran, what do you run? 208 in the marathon, uh, would be pretty extreme. Um, you know, I, yeah, no, I'd be, it'd be a huge honor. It'd be a dream come true for sure. Uh, you know, realistically it's honest, it's probably not going to happen. So I don't think I have to worry about it too much, but you know, that's, it's the ultimate dream. Well, good. That's what keeps us and motiv- motivates us to train. So good luck, Sage. Thanks for joining us. And um, if you do really well, you could be a three-time guest of the, on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, that'd be an honor. Thanks for having me on.